the entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. So President Biden made an unsurprising but big announcement last week that he is running for a second term, and he will undoubtedly be talking up his legislative wins in supporting domestic industry. Biden has really leaned into a modern industrial policy, an approach that has deep historical roots and has become a driving force for clean energy policy around the world. And that's what we're tackling on this episode, which we recorded in front of a live audience. Now, we are out in the world more these days, taking this show on the road. And I was in Napa, California last week at the Prelude Ventures Climate Summit, this intimate gathering of investors and climate tech companies. Many of the people in the room represent the bulk of the venture dollars flowing into this space. And I was on stage with Catherine Hamilton, a longtime collaborator, policy ninja, and someone you've heard on this show a lot. And behind us on a big screen, patched in remotely, were Jigger Shah, another longtime collaborator who runs the loan program. Programs office at the Department of Energy, and Sonia Agarwal, who is a former senior advisor to the president on climate, who is now the CEO of Energy Innovation. And in this conversation, we try to capture the stakes of this green industrial strategy 2.0. Will it work and how will it work? And here it is. Now, everyone in this room understands we're in a uniquely historic moment for the energy system, one that's going to bring about profound change across the global economy. But how unique is this moment, really? Today, we're talking about America's renewed focus on a green industrial strategy. And to understand it, we need to take a quick look back at history. And I found a guide. Microphone check. This is Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton presenting the audiobook version of my pioneering work, Report on the Subject of Manufactures. Or I should say I created one. This is our AI-generated Alexander Hamilton. I tried to train his voice on the Broadway musical, but that was a little bit chaotic. So, in 1791, Hamilton published a 32,000-word blueprint for Congress on how and why the government should support industry to make America a manufacturing powerhouse. Here's a little excerpt from that report. In countries where there is great private wealth, much may be affected by the voluntary contributions of patriotic individuals. But in a community situated like that of the United States, the public purse must supply the deficiency of private resource. And what can it be so useful as in improving the efforts of industry? All of which is humbly submitted. Alexander Hamilton. And this is seen as the first attempt to articulate an American industrial policy. He focused on how the country could dominate in glass and silk and wool and cotton production, no mention of polysilicon or wind turbine blades. Uh, but his pitch for using government to de-risk 
large industrial investments. Certainly sounds familiar. I was the OG of innovation and R&D. Basically, I argued that the government should have a cohesive strategy to boost domestic industries, creating public benefits in partnership with private industry. Needless to say, I didn't exactly see eye to eye with that invisible hand guy Adam Smith or the agrarian guy Thomas Jefferson. Now, why do we have AI Alexander Hamilton with us today? Well, his arguments were foundational for America's various phases of industrial policy. Textiles, shipbuilding, aerospace, defense, semiconductors. And his views still resonate today because we are in a new period of industrial policy in America directly influenced by the Hamiltonian tradition. Here's Brian Dees, who's Biden's former top economic advisor, outlining the strategy in a speech in Cleveland last fall. Alexander Hamilton, our first Treasury Secretary, insisted that, quote, the public purse must supply the deficiency of private resource to prompt and improve the efforts of industry. We are embarking on a new chapter and making the most significant public investment in decades in America's industrial capacity. It is a combined endeavor across infrastructure, innovation, and clean energy that is no less ambitious than the Erie Canal, the transcontinental railroad, rural electrification, the interstate highway system. Over the last two years, we've created the foundation for a green industrial awakening in America thanks to the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act, and they're going to leverage hundreds of billions of dollars to support domestic producers. At the core, there's a strong animating vision that unifies these laws, which is a modern American industrial strategy. And that is what we're talking about today. And the big question is, will it work? And how will it work? Because we've already tried to make it work, specifically in clean energy. Here's President Obama speaking in 2010 at ZBB Energy. I just want everybody to understand, just a few years ago, American businesses could only make 2% of the world's advanced batteries for hybrid and electric vehicles. 2%. In just a few years, we'll have up to 40% of the world's capacity. For years, we've heard about manufacturing jobs disappearing overseas. Well, companies like this are showing us how manufacturing can come back right here to the United States of America, right back here to Wisconsin. It's been a decade and a half since this green industrial narrative took hold in a meaningful way. So what's happened since then? Well, America is a leader in building renewable energy projects. We are certainly a leader in entrepreneurship and venture capital and early research. But Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio have not become the global epicenter of clean energy manufacturing. In fact, rather than making 40% of batteries like Obama envisioned, we now make just over 5%. I should also note that ZBB Energy, the company where Obama made that speech, eventually became NSYNC Energy Systems and then went bankrupt a few years ago, citing difficult market conditions. And so the results are mixed, positive and negative. Go through the list, critical materials, batteries, solar modules. The U.S. makes a tiny fraction of those products. But in contrast, 80% of nacelle assembly and 70% of tower manufacturing for domestic wind projects happen right here in America. So what makes the current push for an industrial strategy, the green industrial strategy 2.0, different? different in a policy context, and different in what the industry can deliver. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. And today, we are live at the Prelude Climate Summit in Napa. Can we hear from the folks in the room?
With me on stage is my dear friend and collaborator, Catherine Hamilton. Catherine is the chair of 38 North. She has been instrumental in writing and helping pass much of the policy we're talking about today. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, and I'm only happy that you were able to find a Hamilton older than myself to start with. <laughs> do you have uh, any Hamiltonian relations we should know about? I do not, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> it is a name by marriage. And we are thrilled to welcome Jiggershaw and Sonia Agarwal, who unfortunately couldn't be with us in person, but they are on their respective perches joining us for the conversation. Uh, Sonia is in New Mexico, and uh, she is the CEO of Energy Innovation. She was, until recently, the senior advisor to the president for climate policy and innovation. She was also pivotal in advancing climate policy through Congress, and she is uh, she's, she's here to talk through how those priorities played out in the administration. Hi, Sonia. How are you? Hi, Stephen. I'm doing great. It's really nice to at least be here uh, by audio with you, and I wish I could be there uh, with you all in person. And... Finally, Jigger is a longtime collaborator as well. He is the director of the Loan Programs Office at the Department of Energy. He's one of the key figures working on getting smart government money into uh, private cutting-edge projects, and he joins us from D.C. Jigger, how are you? Awesome. It's always great to be with all of you. Do you keep a tiny version of Hamilton's report on manufacturers in your back pocket? Obviously. <laughs> all right, let's jump into it. So I want to get initial reactions on my framing to set up this show. And I think the big question is, what is different today compared to when this narrative started to take hold a decade and a half ago? So Catherine, let's start with you. If you could set the framework for today's green industrial push compared to Obama, the Obama era green industrial push, what's different? Yeah, so in 2009, the first standalone energy storage tax credit was introduced and it just got passed. So it's been a long time coming. I would say what you had back then was a slightly different balance of sticks and carrots. So it was mostly sticks. So we had Waxman-Markey bill, which in the end did not get over the finish line in the Senate. That was very regula a very regulatory approach. The EPA did then do the Clean Power Plan. We also had the stimulus bill. So we did have carrots out there too. And I think that made a huge difference in getting some of these technologies off the ground. Now we have a reversal of that. So we have much more in the way of carrots. We have tax credits. We have grants. We have the National Green Bank that's in formation now. And EPA is still doing regulation. That's their job. They're still doing emission standards, and they're going to release a power plant rule as well. So this is still happening so that the balance is slightly different, but also we had a moment in time of political will. Yeah, I like all of that. I think it is a different mix of carrots and sticks. And I also think that, um, you know, it's just a different time in the clean energy market, right? I mean, the costs of all of these climate and clean energy solutions have just continued to come down so quickly, even over the last decade, that now uh, it's such a no-brainer in many instances to be moving in this direction. We just need to actually make sure it happens on a timeline that meets the challenge of the climate crisis. So, you know, we know what the solutions are now. They're upon us. They are cheap and cheaper. Uh, and now, is our time for scale, scale, scale. And that's what I think this whole suite of policies was really focused on bringing forward. Mm. So, so Jigger, when, when 
the president gets up and makes a speech about bringing more domestic manufacturing here. What is different in terms of the, the outcome you think will happen compared to some of those Obama-era speeches? How do, how do you frame this differently? Well, for many of you in the room, right? I mean, we were decision makers back then. The signals that we were being sent were very clear back then, which was, please go to other continents to commercialize your technology. We sent so many American technologies to China to you know, build solar panels. We sent so many technologies to Europe to build uh, industrial facilities, right? I think that today, the signal that's being sent is quite a bit different, right? We are the most attractive place in the country or in the world, sorry, to build battery capacity, to build hydrogen capacity, to build, um, you know, all sorts of uh, industrial manufacturing. Um, And, you know, that came from the Solar Energy Manufacturing Act. It came from, um, you know, the $35 per kilowatt hour that we're spending on battery manufacturing. It comes from very specific policies that were passed. And so today, you know, the South Korean president is here in, you know, uh, in the country this week, um, you've got a bunch of South Korean companies with um, with them, and they're investing heavily in battery manufacturing capacity, in lots of other industrial capacity here in this country. And so, I think that you know we'll see whether you know the hundreds of manufacturing facilities that have been announced will be completed, but certainly many of them are already under construction. And I think you do see now policy and rhetoric actually lining up behind each other. We were always the best in the world at at creating technology. That continues uh, today as it was back then. But I think that when you think about the game that's afoot around industrial strategy, uh, we're now in that game. And I think for many people in the room, but also others who make decisions every day, they are being given very clear signals that America's playing to win. Let's talk about those signals. So we have a wide range of policy that we could talk about, and I want each of you to pull out what you think could potentially be the most impactful. So I'm going to borrow some language from a great RMI analysis that came out on the three bills that were passed that set the foundation of this strategy. Um, They are calling it the triple whammy of policy. So the Chips and Science Act, they're saying, is the brains of the operation. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is the backbone. And the IRA is the engine driving investment growth through demand pull measures. Um, Catherine, what, what, out of those bills, like what, well, first, how do you, what do you think about that characterization? And then what stands out to you as like the most impactful? Yeah, so that's like asking someone to pick their favorite child. It's like they're all super important because they have different uses and different sets of benefits. And um, what was incredible was that we were able to get them all done. Um, and, And now what we're finding is the government has so many more tools. And the government is also much more willing to step into the multiple valleys of death that we have. There's not just the one. And figuring out how do we fill those gaps and what tools do we have to do that. And those three bills combined provide those tools and give DOE and other agencies the ability to go beyond R&D to the ND part, to really get to the deployment part and help those companies. Because as Sonia says, the market's different. So companies have, in the interim over the last decade, really started growing, the costs have been starting to come down, and this will absolutely supercharge it in all three of those ways. Mm. Sonia, is there a standout program or provision from any of those that you think is particularly impactful? Gosh, it's really hard to choose because I think that the real 
um, kind of value of the fact that all of these got done in the last legislative session is is that it's this whole suite of actions that are underway uh, that just sends this clarion call to the private sector saying, now is the time to invest. It's telling everyone around the world that we're serious about doing this. It's it's telling people that now is the time to, as Catherine was saying, get to the deployment and scale moment. Um, You know, if I have to choose, I will always choose the Inflation Reduction Act because that is the engine that drives our uh, greatest emission reduction and I think delivers the most benefits in terms of reducing costs for people um, and and uh, and creating the modern infrastructure we need to succeed. Well, I do think that there is a um, intentionality about this work that is being lost by most people who are you know commenting on it. I think that when you think about what we did in 2009 and then 2015, it was largely just spraying money at problems, right? So you just say, here's the tax credit. Here are the 17 different technologies that qualify for the tax credit. I hope you win. Um, today, I think you know we have a real industrial strategy. It starts with the fact that um, America is, is vastly different than Germany, Canada, Japan, other places. We are decisively private sector-led and government-enabled, right? So we are asking the private sector to uh, pick the innovative and dynamic entrepreneurs that they want to back. And then we are asking them to make up plans, and then the government is enabling them to succeed with a number of programs. But I think separately, um, with the liftoff report for carbon management that we you know, published this week, but also the hydrogen, nuclear, and long-duration energy storage liftoff reports that we published last month, um, we are giving people clear blueprints per sector, not around who to pick as the winner, right? That's the private sector's job, but to outline all the tools that we have to allow these companies to win, right? So whether it's the hydrogen hub funding or the direct you know, air capture uh, hub funding, or whether it's CO2 pipelines, or whether it's, you know, figuring out market uh, mechanisms or federal procurement rules or, you know, tax credits or um, the loan program office, right? Obviously, where we have over $400 billion of loan authority that we're putting to work to get this done. I think that there is a recognition that just saying to somebody, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, why are you so far behind geothermal, doesn't work, right? I mean, you have to actually say, what does it take for geothermal to succeed? We have all this extraordinary hydro, you know, hydraulic uh, fracturing technology that has set us apart, right? And that technology is the exact technology that uh, powers enhanced geothermal. How do we map it over to these new technologies? And I think that the level of intentionality by which the government is putting all these things to work is in plain sight within these liftoff reports. And I think what's missing is the private sector's desire to coordinate with the government. Right now, we have a part of the private sector that's coordinating with the government to tell us exactly how they want to allocate capital and how they want us to use our capital. But there's a huge part of the private sector that, for whatever reason, is not engaging. And then as a result, I think, you know, we're not hearing them. I think that Jigger's point is incredibly important here because uh, one of the first things that President Biden did when he came into office was to uh, issue an executive order on America's supply chains, under which a bunch of different 
priority categories of technologies were identified, and he essentially tasked the federal government with working across all the departments and agencies, with, of course, Department of Energy being front and center for a lot of the the technologies that we're talking about today, um, to, to think about what is the current status of the global supply chain for some of these critical clean energy technologies? What do we have here? What is the cost competitiveness between what we can do here versus other countries? And then how can we use that to inform a really well thought out industrial strategy that underpinned in many ways what was Build Back Better, which of course became um, a lot of what was in the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think there's just a through line here that starts from the very beginning of the administration in really looking to be intentional about where we are focusing government resources in partnership with the private sector to draw out the most value and and move us forward as quickly as we we can to scale up on on all these all these really important technologies. So one more question on the big picture policy and political framing on this. Um, As I said, this is kind of a narrative that the green industrial narrative has been around for almost two decades. I think one of the most one of the earliest characterizations that I heard from you know, a prominent figure was from Tom Friedman, who was out there talking about the Green New Deal before it really became the Green New Deal as we know it. And here's uh, something that he said when he was releasing his book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. Right now, I don't think any politicians in America have really leveled with the American people about the scale, the in pure industrial scale. This could be the biggest transformative concept that's come along in a, in a long, long time. It's about a Green New Deal. And I think it has a huge potential to really propel us forward economically, scientifically, educationally, industrially into the 21st century. Now, that seems very obvious to people in this room and the folks who listen to this show. But I wonder, Catherine, like, does that seem obvious politically in Washington or to Republican governors in the states who, you know, are going to be in states where they need to implement these programs or attract these companies? Um, What do you think about how this framing lands in the context of American politics? Yeah, so there are different places where it will land differently, right? So there's a reason that's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And that was a brilliant maneuver um, to say, like, this really is going to address our economic crisis and try to get us back on our feet and get us building big things. And I think governors want to do that. They're not going to say the Inflation Reduction Act or the infrastructure bill are helping me do this, but they're still on board with whatever comes, whatever ribbon cuttings come into their state. And a lot of them are creating the environment in which you want to work. And you think about states like South Carolina with Battery Alley, with all these companies going down there to build plants. Like it's an ecosystem that's really strong and it's because South Carolina decided we want to encourage these people to come down here. We want to encourage these companies and a lot of red states are doing that. That's really important. Um, But I think what we're going to see is you know, as, as we go forward, the need for the private sector, as Jigger said, to engage more. Because I think the private sector is so used to the government not doing this and not being as helpful that it really, there's like not a lot of muscle memory there. The, the federal government was always on the early stage piece, right? Like, we're going to get you the ARPA-E funding, which is still there and it's still amazing and still super important. But 
this next level of how do we actually help you build your plant? How do we help you scale and with more speed? How do we accelerate this? I think that's something that we need more people at the table. And part of that is just to take advantage of, as Jigger says, all this authority he now has, all of these funds that are out there, um, but also really to be a real partner, to really have public-private partnerships to move forward. Jigger? How does this land in the American political context? Very well. I mean, look, we have 134 applications in the loan programs office seeking $121 billion of loan proceeds. It's in about 165 locations out of those 134 applications. And many of them are in red districts. I mean, I'm getting letters of support from every member of Congress for their particular application, right? Like I've got governors who have to prioritize those projects and provide permits and do all the things that they have to do. So the rhetoric might, you know, be one way or the other, but the actions are very clearly supporting job creation in, you know, their community, right? And I think that it's not just around solar and wind, right? Which I think a lot of people like to talk about. But I mean, we're revitalizing the nuclear sector in this country, right? When you think about the BWRX announcement that, you know, was made by Ontario Power Group and the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? The governor of Tennessee put up $200 million of state money to help support um, you know, TVA accelerating the, you know, deployment of those at Clinch River. When you think about what's happening right now with Halliburton and Schlumberger, or SLB, I guess now, around um, geothermal technology, I mean, it's it's breathtaking, right? I mean, Devon Energy just put uh, an investment into, um, you know, to Fervo Energy, right? And so everyone is getting in on this action. And I get the fact that some of them were worried that their country club membership might get, you know, canceled if they're too outwardly supportive of what we're doing. But increasingly, everyone in the country club is in on it. And they're finally realizing, oh, we invest in the same company. Why are we embarrassed about this? And so everyone's talking about it out loud. It's going to take time. Don't get me wrong. But it's there. Like everyone recognizes that whether it's carbon management, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's nuclear, we're for all decarbonization technologies and there's something in it for everybody. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. So let's dig deeper into industry, um, what it means to decarbonize the industrial sector and also what it means to build that industrial scale. So the industrial sector represents 30% of America's primary carbon emissions and the administration has made industry a big part of its climate plan. Uh, much of that is, is flowing through Jigger's office. In, in March, the White House announced $8 billion for the DOE to fund decarbonization projects in steel, aluminum, concrete, and more. The DOE also has $8 billion at hand to develop hydrogen hubs 
jobs that could help clean up everything from chemicals production to heavy transport to industrial heat. And uh, earlier this month, President Biden was at a Cummins factory in Minnesota where they're going to be producing electrolyzers for green hydrogen production. When Cummins first manufactured hydrogen electrolyzers, they had to make them overseas. These are the machines that make clean hydrogen, a renewable energy used to power our economy from clean cars to trucks to steel to cement manufacturing. But now, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, with the tax credits for renewable energy, Cummins is going to manufacture these electrolyzers here in America for the first time. So, Jigger, you mentioned the liftoff reports, and uh, this is, uh, you know, you're forging a plan alongside private industry to invest tens of billions of dollars into long-duration storage and hydrogen and carbon removal and nukes. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that liftoff strategy will work? Well, you know, remember, as I said before, we're private sector-led uh, government-enabled, right? And then the other thing is that when you backtest around solar and wind and EV manufacturing lithium-ion batteries, now they got cheap, it turns out that you roughly need $100 billion of private sector investment to get across the bridge to bankability to full market acceptance, right? Which doesn't save you a gigaton of carbon, but it gets the technology to a cost-effective point where people are excited. And so these liftoff reports are really... Uh, a conversation with the private sector to say, what is it going to take for you to allocate $100 billion of the capital? And that's not just in the U.S. It's a global number, right? So, um, so you know, we have to do our part. And it turns out that in two of the sectors, we're leading the pack, right? So on hydrogen, we're probably at around $46 billion worth of capital allocation for hydrogen projects that have already been announced. And we're on track to doing about 10 million tons of hydrogen production, clean hydrogen production by the end of the decade. Um, to put that into context, we're at 10 million tons of total hydrogen usage in the United States today. Now, not all of that's going to replace dirty hydrogen. Some of that's going to be for new applications. And so we're growing the market a bit here. But I think it leads one to believe that you know when you combine that with European goals and other goals around the world, that we really are on track to meeting the Secretary's vision around, um, you know, approaching a dollar a kilogram from uh, clean hydrogen um, towards the end of the decade. I think the same thing is true out of the carbon uh, liftoff report, where we've got about $40 billion worth of investment already announced, mostly for easy-to-abate, easy-to-capture sources, right? So natural gas processing, ethanol, ammonia, right? So we're on track to about 141 million uh, tons a year of sequestration. Put that into context, we probably need a gigaton of sequestration a year um, to meet our targets by 2050. But but it allows you to see EPC contractors and others, you know, getting the experience necessary to do this stuff at scale and get the cost down. By contrast, you have two other liftoff reports we have in there, uh, the Advanced Nuclear Liftoff Report and then the um, Long Duration Energy Storage Report, where we're probably only on track to maybe $9 billion worth of investment in long duration energy storage. We have real fundamental market failures around valuing the services that long duration energy storage provides, and we're going to have to work hard to do that. That's not predicting failure. It's just a conversation with the private sector saying, here are some real... uh, uh, hurdles that are in their way to allocating more capital to the sector. And we should highlight what those hurdles are and figure out how to solve them. And then nuclear has its own 
pile of hurdles. Um, and so we highlight those as well in the report. But I think the goal here is not to provide a glass half full assessment, which is you know what we like to do these days, um, but instead to be very accurate about what we're hearing from private sector capital allocation and to highlight why that number isn't higher and you know where it needs to be to really achieve our goals, right? And then we can work together to figure out whether we need new policy, whether we need to reallocate money we already have to meeting additional risks. Like for instance, in hydrogen, one of the things that we were told is that we need to do more to establish demand signals. And so as a result, you're seeing the Office of Clean Energy Demonstration take um, a billion dollars of its money and actually put out an RFI to ask people if we did an other transactions authority um, to provide a floor price to clean hydrogen, would that help capital formation, right? And we'll see what everyone's responses are. But, but I do think that this conversation is a healthy way of getting to $100 billion worth of capital allocation. And that's, I think, what we're really trying to figure out. Yeah, I agree that recognizing the differences in these sectors is really important because these the reports all are called liftoff reports, right? But they come at it from different angles. So as Jigger says, on storage, you have much more. You need more non-dilutive funding. You need to get the market signals right in the wholesale market so that we're appropriately compensated. It's not just storage that needs appropriately compensated. There's a lot of things that need to be appropriately compensated for their potential service and stack benefits to the grid. Um, then hydrogen is much more of an infrastructure issue. And you know, where's the demand coming from? How do we change that entire thinking? You know, how do you think of it the way you would think about natural gas infrastructure? And the nuclear, it's like there's so much commercial uncertainty around that that I think that they have different problems that need to be solved in different ways. And I think it was great that DOE decided to take them individually rather than as a, in a broad brush and say, there are different places where we need to really focus on these and let's get our arms around this so we can really send the right signal to the private sector and help the private sector. Mm. And this gets back to the initial framing, which is what is different about this administration's strategy than in the past. And the focus on the industrial sector seems to be, uh, it's, it's definitely new and it's widespread. And so um, the uh, Energy Secretary Granholm convened a bunch of industry players recently and outlined um, what the, the industrial st industrialization strategy is and it's focused on uh, industrial energy efficiency, low carbon fuels, carbon management technologies, and industrial electrification. So, Sonia, how did industrial decarbonization rise to the top of the administration's priorities, and what is most helpful about what the government can do to help the private sector decarbonize? Well, it's a great question, Stephen. I mean, one of the major um, things that you'll see across probably all of the legislation and uh, a lot of the programs that the administration has been looking to advance um, is is more of an alignment around where do the greenhouse gas emissions come from across our economy. And if you take that lens, then you see that, you know, there's a huge share of our total greenhouse gases coming from the industrial sector um, compared with how much uh, the federal government has actually focused on that sector in the past. So it's about a third of all of our emissions today coming from the industrial sector with about a third from the power sector and about a third 
from the transportation sector with buildings and, and agriculture and land use making up the rest. So um, it is large and it has been largely ignored uh, in the past. So it's not that people haven't been looking at doing efficiency projects and trying to, you know, ensure that the the factories across the country are, are modernized in some fashion. But the truth is a lot of them are very dirty. They are causing a lot of local pollution for communities around them. And uh, there are solutions available already that can help slash uh, a lot of their emissions, even as we continue to work on R&D for the rest. And, and one thing that I think actually the federal government probably has not put enough emphasis on is the opportunity for electrification of so much of these industrial processes. Uh, so, you know, as you know, probably industry uses fossil fuels for two things, right? They use them for energy and they use them for feedstocks. And so on the energy side, fossil fuels are typically burned overwhelmingly to make heat. Uh, and, you know, things like energy for motors and pumps and other things that are in factories are already usually um, run by electricity. Um, and fossil fuels for feedstocks go into things like petrochemicals, things like plastic, fertilizer, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and the, the interesting, I think most interesting end uses for clean hydrogen is in that category of industrial feedstocks. Uh, it, it really, um, it seems like it's a... a, a from a kind of overall system efficiency, uh, economics, and kind of pollution standpoint, trying to minimize the amount of hydrogen that you're burning actually is probably a good direction to go in. Um, so that's why I got really excited um, when I was talking to my team at Energy Innovation, and I could hardly believe them when they told me that about 50 to 70 percent of all the heat used in the industrial sector right now could be electrified with commercially available technologies. So those commercially available technologies might not be being used in those exact industrial applications, but it's things that have been commercialized for other uses. And if we move them over into all of these factories and start trying to create industrial heat using electrified processes, we actually can, can cover a lot of the heat requirements. And, and I used to think that, oh, electrification couldn't really touch a lot of the medium and higher temperature heat applications, but it turns out um, that my thinking was out of date, and I've learned a lot about how much more uh, electrification potential there actually is in the industrial sector. So I just think it's a really exciting time, and as we are kind of moving more of our focus toward all of the potential solutions in the industrial sector, um, we we just have a lot of opportunities uh, to, to, to move things forward. Yeah, and, and I would just put a point on that, um, Sonia, that Jigger has some authority to replace some of these old plants. So these are a bunch of old coal plants that are uneconomic, that are operating in the market. The only reason they are still in existence is because they have to provide heat to a paper mill or to some other industrial facility. And those are things we can tackle right away, as Sonia says, like, let's shut down those coal plants, Let re let's replace them with electrification, with long-duration energy storage, with other things that we can use to immediately shut those down because they're not economic and they're just creating more greenhouse gas emissions, clearly. Jigger, where are the easier wins in industrial decarbonization and what gives you heartburn? Well, I mean, I think you know my answer to almost every question in this vein, right? Which is that 
it's not my place to answer it, right? I mean, it's the place of the people in the audience and the entrepreneurs and innovators in this country to answer it, right? The reason I can do the things that Catherine suggested run uh, coal plants or other things is because some entrepreneur decides that they're going to go to that coal plant and buy it and then replace it with something else using the 1706 loan authority and um, you know, and improve the process, right? And if they need help with an advanced market commitment, so that uh, you know, folks who want to pay a premium for clean steel or clean cement or other things, like you know, we're doing that too at the Department of Energy, uh, in coordination with Climate Envoy Kerry and and others. And so, so there's a lots of ways that we can help. But what what I think sets us apart in the United States versus other countries who frankly waste money with industrial strategy is that we're not the smartest people in the room. The folks who are the smartest people are the American innovators and entrepreneurs who put their, you know, sweat and tears behind something and come to us to like actually get that last bit of help that they need to get to the finish line. We have a fantastic analysis that we do all the time showing what the potential is, as Sonia suggested. But ultimately, we need people on the ground that actually convince people, uh, sector by sector, facility by facility, to pursue that change, right? So I'm super excited about the people who um, you know, can get that done. Let's move into our third and final topic. We cannot have a conversation about industrial policy without talking about transmission. According to a study released in February by the Department of Energy, the transmission system needs to accommodate a 3 to 4x increase in renewable electricity in about a decade. And boy, oh boy, is that going to be difficult. I think John Oliver summed it up well uh, in his 2021 segment about the grid. You can't just keep something that old in place and expect it to keep working forever. PG&E basically took the same approach to their equipment as Democrats did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And in both cases, it didn't end well. So basically, we've got a power grid built in the 20th century that is not equipped to deal with the needs and stresses of the 21st. And if you think, well, okay, let's upgrade it then. You're absolutely right, but that is also a massive undertaking because our shift to renewable energy is going to require a fundamental shift in what our grid looks like. We have over a terawatt of renewables capacity sitting in interconnection queues, partly because of uh, transmission constraints. So how and where are we going to expand the grid? Um, Sonia, we'll start with you. How, how acute is this need for grid expansion? Um, what does it do to potentially derail the administration's targets if we don't see a significant increase in transmission capacity? Yeah, it's acute. Um, and I think it's <laughs> it's um, it's untenable to continue to wait as long as uh, these projects are currently waiting to access the grid. Uh, and so, you know, we need to be thinking about all the potential solutions to this challenge, which I would argue, you know, that should include building new lines. Uh, it should also include include using modern technology that could increase capacity along existing lines, something that some people are calling reconductoring. It's all about just trying to essentially um, uh, really expand the amount of transmission capacity just along the existing lines. Um, there's also you know, opportunities to build clean energy near old power plants that are shutting down so it can take advantage of existing transmission. Uh, there is also, um, you know, uh, opportunities that we need to pursue around um, distributed energy. So something that Catherine was alluding to just earlier was, you know, kind of the vision of 
say, an industrial park that has, um, you know, a large clean energy power plant or two right there with it that are helping to power that industrial park, things like that. We just need to be as creative as we can because, uh, you know, I think in this uh, market environment uh, for clean energy, we're really seeing such uh, attractive prices for clean energy generation uh, that we can start to be putting these um you know, solar uh, plants and wind plants uh, that are are in areas that are kind of more strategically located near existing transmission, because we don't have to always be building lines all the way to the highest resource potential, um, you know, optimized spot quite as as much as perhaps we did when all of these technologies were less efficient and less modernized. So I think we it's an acute problem. The interconnection queues are a really big challenge, and FERC is right now uh, undergoing a process to try to to rework some of that. Um, and uh, and in the meantime, I think we need to also be pursuing all of all of the possible solutions. Yeah, it's super urgent, um, but it's solvable. So you know, there and there are different problems in different places. So. Um, DOE just released this transmission needs assessment that really just goes through and lists everywhere we need transmission, and it's for a lot of different reasons. Some of it's resource adequacy, some of it's to improve resilience and reliability, some of it's to relieve congestion, some of it's to increase transfer capacity. Um, But there are a bunch of different reasons that we need all of these connections and they're kind of, there's kind of a three-pronged approach that um, I've been talking to Senator Heinrich's office in, from New Mexico. Um, and he says it's three Ps, payment, planning, permitting. So payment is, you know, how do you bring down the cost? Unfortunately, the one, one of the things that got stripped for the, from the Inflation Reduction Act that was a bit heartbreaking was the 30% tax credit for transmission. Um, and that was really too bad because that meant that a lot of lines that are merchant lines that have been trying to solve for these problems um, just have to raise a lot more capital. Um, that would have been super helpful. So Senator Heinrich has, of course, been a champion for a tax credit for transmission um, that will continue to be discussed. Then there's planning, and that's like what FERC is doing. How do we? How does FERC actually say, let's get some interregional plans together that identify the issues, but also the benefits to connection and then get those going and through a, through a FERC planning process. And then um, and in that process also have a lot of community engagement. So ASEG, Americans for the Clean Energy Grid, um, are developing a set of policies. And one of those is, you know, you really have to talk to your communities. And we're seeing this now with just citing all kinds of you know, projects, whether it's solar or wind, certainly transmission has had this problem for a long time. And then finally, permitting. And permitting has been um, out there in a lot of different forms. The GOP has put it included in, into HR1, and that's that's a different look at permitting than, say, a Senator Heinrich would put forward. But it's really about trying to streamline it um, avoid delays, avoid multiple agencies having to deal with the siting and permitting of a of a line and and have it you know assigned. So in some cases, a geothermal might have only one, um, say, Army Corps is the is the one agency responsible, and it's not like they're letting any they're not um, lowering all the environmental issues. All they're doing is making sure that it's all housed in one place. So let's figure out how we can do that and allow these projects to go forward because people are ready to build them. They have 
a desire, the technology is there. We just need to have the willpower to get all of these processes in place to do it. Mm. So, Jigger, two-part question here. Um, the DOE has uh, $15 billion in funding through the infrastructure law to support transmission expansion. Where do, where should the DOE or where is the DOE going to prioritize that funding? And then, um, secondly, you are also thinking beyond transmission and thinking about uh, grid optimization on the, distri the distribution level and thinking about virtual power plants. This is something you've been talking about for a long time and have brought inside the DOE. And we are starting to see some uh, DOE loan guarantees manifest in this area. So first talk about transmission and then talk about virtual power plants and how that can alleviate some constraints and integration issues as well. Some of that can be paid by, you know, expanding the grid, right? Reconductoring, right? Replacing the existing wire with fantastic new wire that can 3x the current grid capacity. Some of it can be smart grid technology where we reroute the power and which way it goes physically like to less, you know, clogged areas, right? And some of it can also go a different direction, right? So one thing that we're talking about on this side is like sort of well-known. It's just like you have a certain amount of pipe. How do we use it as much as possible? Got it, right? And we do battery storage at the end to try to like, you know, manage some of that on that side. The other piece is virtual power plants, right? So now we're also separately saying that we're going to add millions of electric vehicles to people's homes and businesses and, you know, other places, charging infrastructure, et cetera, um, heat pumps as well. And you know, like happens is, is that we continue to do the same thing we did when air conditioning was a thing in the late 70s and the 80s and 90s, is we say, let's just build out more TND and let's just build natural gas peaker plants to basically, you know, be able to handle all that extra load. It turns out that that's crazy expensive. Who would have known? And so it raises rates about 10% a year to do exactly the same thing that we did in a dumb way 20 years ago. Great. So let's do it a smarter way. The smarter way is called virtual power plants. And what happens is, is that today we're adding, we're adding two gigawatts a month to uh, our homes and businesses of things that you can control with an app on your phone, right? So you can control when your EV charges um, or doesn't charge. You can control your thermostat. You can control water heating for advanced, you know, heat pump water heaters, and you can control batteries and when it charges and discharges. Once something is controlled with an app on your phone, you can also get paid to give someone else control of that app to, you know, to control that, right? And what that allows you to do is use not just the transmission line more efficiently, right, by fluctuating load with the same level of dexterity that we used to only fluctuate supply, but we eventually, right, and Brattle has done a great study on this, you can eventually actually make the entire grid supply following and not load following, right? Today, we don't even think about it. We're like, well, of course it's load following, right? But actually, we have the technologies to make the entire grid supply following, right? And that's really cool, right? And by the way, DOE has been piloting these technologies for 30 years. So that's a lot of what we're doing. And the Hestia deal that we announced last week, which is $3 billion, um, basically was to get the solar financing industry into virtual power plants. And through that effort, I don't know if you noticed, but SunPower and Sunrun announced last month that they've transformed themselves into virtual power plant companies. Who would have thought? And so it's one of those things where we've 
pulled the solar industry from the dark ages into the light as well and said, hey, you know, why don't you do more with what you do? I mean, SunPower, or sorry, Sonova is going to have, I think they're projecting in the release that we put out, 30% of all their systems will have battery storage. And, you know, we're saying, great, you know, figure out a way to get those customers more compensation for that asset that's in their garage. Yeah, so here's the thing, is utilities. So they think DERs are like Thelma and Louise, and Jigger thinks of them as evil Knievel. So what we're trying to do is like get utilities to even recognize that DERs are a resource. They see customers as load. They don't see customers as a resource. And I spend a huge amount of time, I was writing a comment yesterday on the plane out uh, in Louisiana, and just trying to get utilities to build DERs, to build customer assets into their modeling, which forever has been the answer to every model and planning is to build another natural gas plant. Now they're starting to build a little few more renewables in, but demand side, demand side is done separately, completely separately in a different process. And being able to make it a flexible demand scenario where that is actually part of the entire system is crucial. And I'm hoping that this kind of leapfrogging to virtual power plants will do the trick on the ground right now. It's really hard to do. So we've reached our time. And before we go, I want to play just one quick final game. Um, This has been a very you know, serious conversation, but I want to liven it up a little bit and play a game that I call Biden or Bot. Now, I want to be, I need to be journalistically responsible here and tell everybody that this is basically the equivalent of a Madame Tussauds wax figure talking to you all, uh, not the real man in the White House. Hey folks, it's your president. Now that you've spent the hour having a serious conversation about my green industrialization strategy, it's time to have a little fun. Stephen asked me to join and explain the rules of the game. I've been talking a lot about clean energy manufacturing over the years. I've spilled a lot of words and told a lot of stories. Let's see if our contestants can accurately identify a real quote from one of my speeches and the two fake ones. So, Jeeger, Catherine, Sonia, are you ready? Is everybody ready? Yep. All right, here's quote number one. I love clean energy manufacturing, folks. It's like the Beatles of the energy industry. It's clean, it's cool, and it's got a great beat. And just like the Beatles, clean energy is going to take the world by storm. So let's hop on the clean energy bandwagon and sing All You Need Is Solar. All right, here's number two. Clean energy manufacturing is like a smoothie, folks. You put in all the good stuff, the fruits, the veggies, the yogurt, and you blend it up into something delicious and nutritious. And you know what's even better? It's good for you and the planet. So let's make that clean energy manufacturing smoothie and drink it up. Can it's two? <laughs> Feels pretty realistic to me. All right, here's the third one. You have to choose which one is the real one. You know what they say, folks. You can't make an omelet without cracking some eggs. And in this case, the eggs are dirty energy. We need to crack them and make room for clean energy manufacturing. It's not just good for the environment. It's good for our wallets, too. We can save money on energy costs and create jobs at the same time. It's a win-win. So let's crack some eggs and make that omelet. Catherine, what do you think? It's got to be that last one. The other ones are malarkey. <laughs> Sonia, what do you think? That was also my guess, but I'm honestly, that those are all great. I love them. Let's have them say them all. <laughs> it's the last one, I think. 
It's none of them. That was oh. spun up <laughs> in like, like 30 seconds on ChatGPT, and then I used a voice generator and uh, just showing what a weird, wild world we are entering. So, uh, you know, we need people like Jigger, Catherine, and Sonia to help walk us through this weird world and uh, move us into another cleaner world. So let's thank all of them, Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, and Sonia Agarwal. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Sonia and Jigger. Let's throw that Beatles on. Sorry, make, we're not Blend there. up that manufacturing smoothie and crack some eggs. Here comes the sun. <laughs> Our egg smoothie. And that is it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by me and Dalvin Abawaje. A big thanks to Prelude Ventures for having us at the event. Prelude is a supporter of Postscript Media and also a supporter of the top climate tech entrepreneurs who are working on solutions in energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. We got to meet a lot of those companies this week, and boy, are they doing some interesting stuff. Stuff. And give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify if you like the show and send a link to a friend or colleague. And we'll catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Carbon Copy.